Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth. Welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gill, the host of the documentary Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at openyoureyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country, sharing information on eye care and eye disease. New research shows approximately 15% of the U.S. population will get dementia, causing them to lose their independence, not able to drive, unable to hold a job, and will eventually be totally dependent on a caregiver. We are told Alzheimer's disease has no cure and medical care cannot prevent progression. Today's guest, Dr. Dale Bredesen, a true medical hero, has been researching Alzheimer's disease for at least 30 years. Dr. Bredesen has over 100 proven cases of improvement of this devastating disease. His approach is simple. Find the cure, find the cause, and treat it. I want to welcome Dr. Dale Bredesen, the author of the New York Times bestseller, The End of Alzheimer's, and his just released book, The Alzheimer's Program. Dr. Bredesen, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Dr. Gill. Thanks for having me. So I have to ask you first a philosophical question. Why doesn't medicine look at causes of disease? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I think it's because over the years, you know, it's been going on for millennia, there hasn't been an understanding of what the causes, especially of these complex chronic illnesses. So, so much of what I learned in medical school is about diseases with no known cause, whether you're talking about lupus, whether you're talking about rheumatoid arthritis, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. So we often give them names, as they say, name it and blame it. And so we, it, it, it gives us the illusion that we understand, oh, that's Alzheimer's disease. But as, uh, you know, as I pointed out, uh, Alzheimer's disease is like saying that your car's not working because of car not working syndrome. It doesn't tell you anything about the cause. And so we spent many, many years looking at what actually drives the phenomenon of neurodegeneration. And as you indicated, what actually happens is all of the trials, all of the treatments for Alzheimer's have been irrespective of the underlying causes. You just say, okay, we're going to treat with X, drug X, drug Y, whatever. And you don't ask, why does this person have the depth, the loss of the synapses in their brain associated with Alzheimer's? So you really need to ask the question. And what we identified is that there are dozens and dozens of different contributors, and they're a little different for each person. So you need to ask the question, what's causing it? And then you need to go after those things. And that has given us unprecedented improvements in people with cognitive decline. We have a lot in common because we, we're both looking at brain tissue. I'm looking at brain tissue through the eye. Uh, when we look at, into the eye at the optic nerve at the retina, we're actually looking at brain. And Dr. Amen has mentioned that he's a, a neuropsychiatrist and psychiatrists deal with the brain, but they don't even look at the brain. Yeah. Well, here we are now with our technology, we could see between 10 and 15 microns of brain tissue when we look into the eye. 
Tell me how that could, it's going to help us to be able to diagnose Alzheimer's and other diseases earlier. Yeah, this is a really good point, and I think it's going to be incredibly important going forward. Um, as you know, you're just looking at changes in the, in the nerve fiber layer. Uh, you can actually see in, in the dementia process. So you, you do have a window on the brain. Not only that, you have a window onto brain-related diseases, things like glaucoma, which really could be called optic nerve degeneration. So it is another neurodegenerative problem. Uh, of course, uh, age-related macular degeneration, which although it affects, of course, the retinal pigment epithelia, it also affects the, uh, the ganglion cells. It also affects the rods and cones and things like this. So, so secondarily, this is a neurodegeneration, essentially. So I think these are gonna be absolutely critical. You're gonna be able to see changes both within the eye and as reflections of things like Alzheimer's disease. Most importantly, you're gonna be able to see them early on and you're gonna be able to follow them where it, the things that we're doing as neurologists, we're typically looking at things where we can't see it directly. We're not opening up the skull and looking down into the brain. We're using things like MRIs and PET scans and things like that to give us an idea of what's going on. So I think you have a, a real advantage. And you know, our work over the years has been basic test tube research, looking at what are the molecular mechanisms that drive the degeneration of neurons and related cells. And when you actually look at this, you see a pattern, which is what's been really interesting to me. Whether you're talking about Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, or you're talking about macular degeneration or glaucoma, all of these things have one thing in common. And that is that in each of these cases, you're dealing with a subsystem of the brain, as you indicated, and you're now looking at a system that has a certain supply of things. You have to have specific trophic factors, nutrients, hormones, blood supply, oxygenation, all of this. Then you've got a demand. And the demand has to do with how much you're using these circuits. And of course, as you know, great example of this mismatch is in macular degeneration. You've got a tremendous demand because you're, this is an incredibly metabolically active part of your body. So if you have a lot of blue light exposure, more demand, more likelihood. You have, you're living near the equator, more demand. You are living at, high, uh, at a high altitude where you now have less oxygenation. Now you have less supply. So anything that tips that balance tips your balance, and of course, genetics plays a role in this. If you have CFH mutations and things like that, or CFH SNPs, that plays a role. So it's that adjustment. So what we do in people with cognitive decline, and that has been so successful, we measure all the things that are there for their supply and demand. Everybody with Alzheimer's has got a mismatch. So this is really the mismatch theory of neurodegeneration. So what do we do? We increase all the things on the supply side, we reduce the things on the demand side. And we've seen uh, sustained improvements now in people for over eight years. And as you indicated, we've published over 100 different cases of documented improvement. And there are many people who still don't believe it. They just say, this can't happen. No, it's not magic. It is simply biochemistry looking at what's driving the process. So I'm very excited. This is an, a very exciting time for all of us who are interested in the neurodegenerative processes be it reflected in the eye or reflected in the brain, because for the first time now, we're going to be able to attack these successfully. 
I don't, when I look into somebody's eye and I see all this peripheral drusen, mm -hmm. I'm at a crossroads because I know that these people are at risk for yeah. getting neurodegenerative disease. So I refer them to read your book many times and uh, people are really very thankful. And I know that there's part, there's always gonna be parts of people in medicine and as things change and people are pioneers that it's gonna say, well, you know, that's too early, let's wait for symptoms. But why should we wait for symptoms? Uh, you know, again, everything in this field of neurodegeneration has been backwards because people didn't understand what was driving the process and they didn't understand what to do about it. So this is exactly the same thing that they say in neurology. They say, oh, you know, your, your brain might be quite, not quite what it used to be, but you know, you're just getting a little older. Don't worry about it. Come back in a year. They keep saying this. It's early days. And then finally they say, oh, you got Alzheimer's. There's nothing we can do about it. And as you know, uh, with Drusen, same sort of story. Um, if you go on, a, as you know, AREDS 2, instead of losing 13 lines of vision, you lose 12 lines of vision. You know, it's not a, it has a, it has a modest effect. It's there, but it's, it's a, quite a modest one. And then, of course, people let the people go all the way to wet macular degeneration. And then you're now doing injections. And the problem is with these injections, as you know, you're basically telling the eye, you know, the eye is crying out for more support. It's just what we just talked about. Everybody with these drusen has a mismatch. We want to do this and make it so that you've got a match again. But instead, they just let it get worse, worse, worse. Your eye is crying out for support. So what does it do? It now sends signals, grow blood vessels here from the choriocapillaris into the macula, and they bleed. And so then you, ah, now you're going to prevent this. Does you well know when you use these injections to prevent that blood vessel formation, which the eye is asking for? What happens? You get an increased frequency of geographic atrophy. So you're now unfortunately sacrificing the future for the present. So you're absolutely right. You need to jump in as early as possible and identify all of the things. As you know, oxygenation, atherosclerosis. Of course, look at the genetics to understand what's contributing there. Ongoing inflammation, complement activation. These things are all critical. So my argument is just as it is for cognitive decline, get in as early as possible. Yeah, we have a 10 point plan. You know, when I look at my 10 point plan and I read your book, there's a lot of similarities in preventing macular degeneration because with, with 10 microns, we could see these drugs in our 20 year olds, 25 year olds, I see it on 16 year olds. And obviously if we're seeing that on kids, we know that their diets are bad, their lifestyle is bad, they're looking in front of the computer too much. I mean, we need to intervene very early. And now with OCT technology, we could actually look at the choroid and we could see that the choroid is starting to get thinner and these blood vessels are dropping out, probably very similar like in the brain. Yeah, it's a really good point. You know, your macula is like a Ferrari that's going 220 miles an hour the entire time the light is on. You're just, this is just such an active thing. So no surprise, you start giving it poor gas, you start giving it, a, get, letting the oil get low, letting the transmission fluid get low. It just fails. This is a dramatically demanding part of your body. And so as you indicated, you're seeing the earliest changes in people who are so young. So, and of course, the same sorts of things happen with cardiovascular disease. 
There are changes in people who are in their teens, but you don't do anything about it until they end up having a heart attack at 48, that sort of thing. So yeah, we absolutely, this is for the 21st century, uh, medicine is completely changed. 20th century was all about acute illness. People died of pneumococcal pneumonia and tuberculosis and diphtheria. The 21st century is now about, we are all dying of complex chronic illnesses, Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular disease, cancers. And of course, a reflection of that is things like glaucoma and macular degeneration and other ocular diseases, diabetic retinopathy, another good example. So getting these, these are the things where you wanna get in as early as possible. And you wanna make a programmatic change with these complex chronic illnesses, again, it's not the old-fashioned medicine, prescription pad medicine, in and out, boom, gone, wait until you have symptoms. No, you want to get in before the symptoms with exactly the sort of technology you described, and you want to make changes that are personalized. You look at all the things that are driving the process for each person, and there's a tremendous amount you can do. People should not get these diseases. In fact, Things like macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's should be rare diseases instead of the very common diseases that they are today. When we look at chronic disease, we always use the word multifactorial. Yes. Because it's not an infection where you can take an antibiotic and, and get better. You know, it's very complicated from the weight. Let's look at like macular degeneration. There was no macular degeneration basically before 1900 until we until we started with all the processed food and the inflammatory oils and all the extra sugars that we're eating. Uh, it, how, about Mac, how about Alzheimer's? Was there, was there Alzheimer's before 1900 or much? Of, I know it, uh, it was discovered in like, I think 1903, but was there people with dementia before that? Yeah, it's a great point. You know, there definitely were people with dementia. And in fact, uh, in Ayurvedic uh, physicians from thousands of years ago, described dementia. Of course, they didn't call it Alzheimer's disease, but they called it, but they had a term that was, that was that meant dementia. And interestingly, we published back in 2015, the first subtyping saying, okay, there's an inflammatory Alzheimer's, there's an atrophic Alzheimer's, there's a glycotoxic Alzheimer's, there's a toxin related, there's a vascular related. So we could actually see subtypes. Now, when you, know, when you look more deeply at the metabolic profiling, you can see these different subtypes and you have to attack them differently. As you've kind of alluded to, you know, these things are going wrong, people are eating the wrong things, et cetera. That's why you're getting this problem. So no question it existed before, it wasn't as common. It's on the dramatic rise. Both Parkinson's and Alzheimer's dramatically increasing right now, unfortunately. And as you indicated, you know, Alzheimer published his first papers uh, early 1900s. Uh, so it's been around for, uh, for that period of time, but clearly there were things like this before then. Now, again, different causes back then. People had infectious, for example, causes uh, of dementia back then. Things like syphilis, which can give you dementia. Uh, you don't see that much anymore. But Alzheimer's, dramatic increases along with other neurodegenerative conditions. So let's clear up some of the nomenclature of uh, dementia. People get very confused. When is it Alzheimer's? One is it mild cognitive impairment and some of the terms, what, what is it, what, how, do we, uh, how do we reconcile that? Yeah, that's a great point and people mix these up all the time. So dementia is a general term that means global loss of cognitive abilities. 
you have trouble with dressing, you have trouble with taking care of yourself, you have trouble with your memory and things like that. The most common cause under the dementia, there are many causes, frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body dementia, Alzheimer's, vascular dementia. Alzheimer's is by far and away the most common cause of dementia. So people often confuse the two terms. So Alzheimer's really occurs in four different stages. So first, the thing that happened, and this is, you know, this comes back to what the disease actually is, which is what we've studied for so many years. So the idea here is by the time you are diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it's been going on for 20 years typically. So what happens is you start the earliest changes of a disease that we thought was a disease of old age, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. No, it's really a disease of your 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s that doesn't really play out and get diagnosed for 20 years. Again, just like cardiovascular disease that is starting in the teens and you don't get a heart attack until your 40s, 50s, and 60s. So in fact, with Alzheimer's, the first phase of this is where you are asymptomatic. You've got the beginning pathophysiology. And in fact, if we had an OCT for the brain, we would be able to see changes in synaptic structure even then. But this is a pre-symptomatic period. That's phase one. Phase two then is where you'll start to have what's called SCI, subjective cognitive impairment. And this is so common. People say, you know, my memory's not what it once was. They say, oh, no, it's just you're getting a little older. No, you're beginning a process that if you don't do something about it, could someday lead. And again, we like to jump in, either get on prevention or at the earliest changes. So if SCI, by definition, that means you're still testing within normal range. But you, you, know, you may have fallen from some higher uh, area. So in fact, it's a it's a, an unfortunate diagnosis because usually it means that yes, things are on their way, but that's called SCI. Then SCI often lasts a decade. So you have a long time to intervene here and make those critical changes so that you never get Alzheimer's. Again, medicine has been backwards. We say, yeah, you know, it's probably not Alzheimer's, you know, don't do anything about it, just wait, it'll probably go away bad idea. You want to get in there as early as possible, get on the right program, get the right evaluation, because virtually all of the SCI people get better if they do the right things. Now, after a typically a decade of SCI, the third phase begins, which as you indicated is MCI, mild cognitive impairment. In this case, now this means you are testing abnormally on your, on your cognitive tests but you're still able to care for yourself. You're still able to have the activities of daily living, dressing yourself, uh, you know, toileting, bathing, all that sort of stuff. So that's MCI. And about five to 10% of MCI patients convert to full-blown Alzheimer's per year. So when you have MCI, you're at risk now to converting to full-blown dementia. So that's the fourth phase then where you actually have Alzheimer's, and that's the only time it's called Alzheimer's. All these other ones are pre-Alzheimer's. So you can see we should really be focusing on these earlier phases, not allowing people to get. There should be, it should be very rare for anyone to progress to Alzheimer's disease. But unfortunately, the way things are set up currently, people just go and they wait until it's very, very late in the process. So that's the way, it, that, that's the difference between pre-symptomatic SCI, MCI, and Alzheimer's disease. If you could go over some of the early signs and symptoms. So if I'm misplacing my keys or I can't come up, retrieve a word, is, is that the beginning? 
So th again, this is where medicine is so backwards. They say, oh, you know, don't worry about it. It's probably not Alzheimer's. Well, look, let's, let's take the worst case scenario. You do worry about it. You get evaluated. You get on the right things and you get better. And oh, you weren't going to get Alzheimer's. It was something that wasn't going to progress as much. Is that bad? You know, your memory is still affected. This is one of the things that drives me crazy. The doctors will say, oh, well, yeah, your memory's bad, but we've decided it's not Alzheimer's. Okay, next patient. Well, wait a minute, that person still has memory problems. What are you gonna do about it? You still have to get to the bottom of this. So you bring up a really good point. What are the first things to look for? And so again, we recommend anyone 45 years of age or older, just as you get a colonoscopy, when you turn 50, you wanna make sure that you're not gonna have a, a significant colorectal cancer that you could die from. So the same idea, everyone at 45 or old, if you're over 45, you know, go for it when you can, get a cognoscopy. That's simple, you get three things. Number one, some a blood tests that look at the things that are driving the process. Number two, you get some online cognitive testing. So you wanna know how is my memory? How is my executive function? And number three, if you, and again, number three is optional if you don't have symptoms. If you're asymptomatic, don't need to get an MRI. If you're symptomatic, then include an MRI with volumetrics. You wanna know your hippocampal volume because that begins to shrink with Alzheimer's disease. So when people begin to have symptoms, there are basically two different things that can happen. About two thirds of people who are going to go on to get Alzheimer's will start with an, what we call an amnestic presentation. In other words, they'll have problems with their memory and there are specific sorts of things so that they'll have problems, for example, uh, with remembering things that they've recently learned. They usually don't forget their first grade teacher. So they'll say, oh yeah, I remember Mrs. Jones I had in first grade. No problem with the long term, but it's learning new things. And it's very interesting if you look at, again, the way the brain working, your brain is now downsizing. And so someone asked me, why would memory go first? It's such an important thing. So let me ask you, Carrie, if I said to you, you can wake up tomorrow. Your, your brain is now going to have to downsize because you've got insults going on. You've got insulin resistance. You've got chronic inflammation. The things that cause chronic illness. Now, I'm going to give you a choice. You can wake up tomorrow and not be able to learn new things, but you'll still have all the things you learned doing your, during your life. You're either going to not be able to remember how to do your job or to speak or to add and subtract or to plan things or you're gonna forget the Friends rerun from tonight. Okay, so this is exactly what your brain is doing. It is downsizing, it's losing some of its neuroplasticity. And that's what happens in early Alzheimer's. And people notice this as, wait a minute, you know, I just, I can't remember phone numbers the way I used to. I can't remember directions the way I used to. I just don't have that sharpness that I used to. And yes, that is the beginning. Now. Even the normal cognition that you and I are enjoying could be better if we're doing the right things. And you may be doing many of the right things. That will help you. And people notice this all the time. Oh, you know, I've started to do, get into some mild ketosis, you know, plant-rich diet, on and on, you know, doing more exercise, better with my sleep. I found that I have mild sleep apnea. I fixed that, all these things. You will be sharper, as you know. So, the, so the, as I say, about two-thirds of the people, amnestic beginning. About a third of the people will have a non-amnestic beginning. And here are the things they get. 
difficulty with planning things. I often ask people, you know, if you had to get out the door and pack a suitcase really quickly and get out the door to the plane, could you do that? And they're like, oh no, I just, I can't plan the way I used to. I can't plan my day. They'll have trouble learning new things, for example, on an iPhone, things like that, so-called executive dysfunction. Or they'll have trouble with word finding, or they'll have trouble with facial recognition, so-called prosopagnosia common thing. They just, they'll see people and they just won't be able to remember, wait, this person is this, this face means this person, this face means that person. Um, or they'll have trouble with recognition of objects. The things like primary progressive aphasia, where they have trouble with word finding. Uh, things like that. They have trouble with repeating sentences, things like that. These are all presentations heading to Alzheimer's disease, of a, typically of a non-amnestic sort. Now, of course, Late in the process, you have all those problems. But we usually like to look at whether it's amnestic, predominantly at the beginning, or non-amnestic, because that gives us insight into what's causing it. The garden variety Alzheimer's, typically having input from things like insulin resistance and chronic systemic inflammation, typically presents with an amnestic presentation. The ones who have the non-amnestic presentation, especially the ones who do this in their 50s, we see it all the time, late 40s to mid 50s. These are people who typically have toxic exposures, things like biotoxins or metallotoxins or chemotoxins. And so therefore you have to look for those. And most places that you get evaluated, they're not looking for these. And so they're not addressing them. And therefore people don't get better. So in fact, this is, as I say, this is a downsizing that your brain is doing. If you can understand what's causing it, you can allow the neuroplasticity then to return. People that get nervous sometimes, they're, they're very nervous that they're maybe in a neighborhood they've never been before. And then all of a sudden they try to get directions and then yeah. they can't remember the directions when they're nervous. When they're not nervous, they seem to be okay. But when they get nervous, that's when their memory totally fails them. Is that, is that any clue? Yeah, that is a really good point. So loss of spatial memory is often one of the first signs of Alzheimer's disease because the cells that are critical for spatial recognition are affected early in this process. And one of the things that you'll hear from people that they'll say commonly is, you know, when I was first getting this problem, before I knew I was going on to have Alzheimer's, I pulled up to a stop sign in an area that I'm familiar with. And I had, I suddenly felt that I had no idea, should I turn left, should I turn right, should I go straight? They literally lose it, often in these waves. And then it will come back. And then later, of course, they'll lose it permanently. So again, this is an early indication, especially if it's in an area where you are generally familiar with the area, suddenly you feel lost. And as you indicated, it's much worse when they get nervous. Uh, but even when they're not nervous, they'll sometimes have a problem. But you're right, they'll pull up and then they'll say, oh, wait a minute, is it this way? Was it that way? And they'll have to find out. How, and, and again, people will have trouble getting home. And we've heard stories where um, the uh, sons and daughters uh, or the spouses will have to go out and find the people. You know, find where they are. Now, obviously, much better now with cell phones, with GPS, and things like that. But uh, this is a common thing to hear. If we could go into a little bit more detail on the cognoscopy, especially some of the blood tests that you recommend, and and then I want to bring up that maybe as optometrists we could be part of the cognoscopy because we have the OCTs and we have the retinal imaging, and we could work together with doctors that you've trained that you know part of your protocol. Because I know in New Jersey we have a doctor in an area close to me that that 
does the doctor write us in protocol, the recode. So, uh, so if we could talk about uh, I'll talk about that and how the optometrist could, could be involved a little bit more to help you. Absolutely. And I think that the optometrist can play an important role, uh, not just as we were talking about earlier, not just in the, the neurodegenerations that are glaucoma and that are, uh, that are macular degeneration, but also in changes within the brain, such as Alzheimer's disease. Um, as you indicated, OCT, and you're going to be able to do better and better. You can see these the thinning of the nerve fiber layer, which has been described so frequently. You may actually see, especially if, if, you, uh, especially if you're looking at fluorescence um, with uh, having people eat curcumin, you can actually see with some fluorescence, you can actually see these little uh, amyloid deposits. And as you, uh, as you know, uh, and you indicated in some of your slides, you actually see some amyloid in drusen. That's uh, another thing that, that you see there. And, this, you know, and what this amyloid really is, is a protection against insults. It has an antimicrobial effect. So you can pick up these changes. You're also seeing people who may not be aware of their cognitive changes. So if they're interacting with you and you're saying, you're asking them questions and they're a little bit sketchy about the answers and they say, well, I don't really remember this. One of the common things we call the head turning sign. Every time you ask the question, they turn their head to look at their spouse to have the spouse ask them. That's something that again indicates they're not thinking clearly. So getting these people as early as possible could be extremely helpful. But you asked about some of the blood tests, and this is really critical for cognoscopy. And I, I agree with you. I think optometrists can play a key role in looking at early changes because you are looking directly at an extension of the brain. And so the thing that we're looking for is we're simply looking for the blood tests. And unfortunately, if you go to a typical center, they're not checking the critical things that are driving the process. They're doing a couple of tests, like looking at your serum sodium and your serum potassium, and then they just tell you, there's nothing we can do. It's Alzheimer's, you know, we can't help you. Uh, or it's pre-Alzheimer's, you know, come back later. So you want to know the very things that I was just talking about before. You want to know if there's inflammation, if there is glycotoxicity, if there is atrophic, so, so decrease in hormones, nutrients, or trophic factors, if there are toxins, if there's decrease in vasco support, or if there's been trauma. Those are the six types of Alzheimer's disease. So we wanna know if you've got ongoing inflammation. We wanna know your HSCRP. We wanna know your albumin to globulin ratio. There are other things you can look at, but really those two simple tests can tell you a lot about whether there is ongoing inflammation. Some people also like to look at ferritin, although this is a, you know, an iron-carrying protein. It also will go up in the presence of inflammation. So those are good ones to look at. Then that's, so that's type 1 or inflammatory Alzheimer's. Type 2, and people often have con uh, contributions from a couple of different types. Type 2 is atrophic. So in this case, instead of increasing the demand, you're actually decreasing the supply. So if you don't have enough nutri nutrients, various nutrients, vitamin D, uh, your methylation ability uh, with your various B vitamins, for example, these are critical things. If you don't have enough hormonal support, many, many people we, have, we see have decrease in estradiol, in testosterone, things like that, uh, pregnenolone, uh, progesterone, all of these things critical, DHEA, thyroid hormone, critical. So these are all part of supporting that network. And of course, trophic factors, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which of course is critical in the eye as well. So BDNF, 
nerve growth factor, these things are critical. When these things go down, you don't have the support. So we want to measure things like vitamin D, various hormone levels. We want to measure your homocysteine level. Homocysteine actually has to do with both, with, with methylation, with support, but also uh, with inflammation. So that's type two. Then there's a type 1.5, and we named it that because it has to do with both. It has features and very common contributor to Alzheimer's disease. And this is glycotoxic. This is the insulin resistance that is so common in Alzheimer's. The vast majority of people with Alzheimer's do have some degree of insulin resistance. So what that means is you've had too much sugar, you've got insulin, which is high for years, now your neurons have actually turned down the response to your insulin. So you don't have that trophic, that supportive effect of the insulin signaling as has been shown repeatedly. And therefore you are gonna have the atrophic part of the Alzheimer's, the type two, but also you have an inflammatory component because what happens when your sugar climbs up high and you, and by the way, high sugar, um, you have an increased risk for things like macular degeneration, glaucoma, but you also have a risk for increasing your cardiovascular disease, but also for Alzheimer's disease. As the sugar climbs, then in fact, the sugar literally gloms on, just like remoras on a shark, grabs on to many, many different proteins. And so now it alters the function of the proteins, it alters the structure of the proteins. Your body comes along and recognizes, oh, this is an unusual looking protein. This is foreign, and so no surprise, you get an inflammatory response. And so this is, you're, you're literally looking at a change in this. And so you get both the inflammatory component and you get the insulin resistance, the atrophic component. So we call it type 1.5. So we wanna know your hemoglobin A1C, we wanna know your fasting insulin, we wanna know your fasting glucose. And we can calculate very easily your HOMA IR, which is the best way to look at whether you have some insulin resistance. That's the type 1.5. Then type three, toxic. Three types of toxins, as I mentioned. Metals, we wanna know things like your mercury, your copper, your zinc, your iron, et cetera. Second thing, we wanna look at your chemotoxins, formaldehyde, benzene, toluene, glyphosate. It's amazing how many of us have a toxic burden we're unaware of until we get these chronic illnesses like Alzheimer's. We see it all the time and you need then to bring these things down. And then the third group is the biotoxins. So there are toxins made, for example, by mold species, especially the big five. So Stachybotrys makes these toxins called trichothecenes, as an example. So then penicillium, aspergillus, wallemia, and ketomium. So these are the big five. There are lots of mold species that don't typically make these. So check out, the easy thing you can do is get an ERMI score. This is from the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. You can check and see if your house has a high ERMI score, if you've got some of these bad news molds that are actually making these things. And unfortunately, as people have pointed out over the years, most of us live in mold food. Our homes are made out of mold food. And so as we then, as long as there's dry, good. But when we start getting intrusion from water during storms and things like that, the molds start to flourish. And of course, the molds make toxins. And why do they do this? Because they are trying to survive in a world where they are competing with bacteria. 
and bacteria grow much faster than molds. So the molds are gonna get out, they're gonna get overrun, outcompeted by these bacteria. So what do they do? They make things, of course, like penicillin. That's how we got penicillin. They're fighting the bacteria around. Now, unfortunately, some of these toxins, like trichothecenes, like ochratoxin A, like aflatoxin, like gliotoxin, are tremendously damaging for human beings, unfortunately. And so we often don't realize we're being exposed to these until we bother to find out, until we bother to check. So you wanna know that, and then that's so that we do tests for those things, and then the, the last one is vascular. Tra the traumatic part, that's typically by history. Um, we wanna especially look at traumatic for people who've had concussions and have a triad, depression, aggression, dementia. That triad is very suggestive of old head trauma, of CTE, basically. For vascular, we want to know your lipid panel, your typical things. We want to know, do you have ongoing inflammation, just as we talked about before, but we want to know what's your HDL, and especially your triglyceride to HDL ratio. That's a very good uh, indicator. Just looking at total cholesterol, not a very good indicator. And we worry people will drop their cholesterols too low. That's not the thing that's, that's damaging your vessels. It, it's really the LDL particle number. It's really the, uh, the ongoing inflammation. These are the things you have to worry about. Uh, so the, the cholesterol itself doesn't tell you a lot. So look at the triglyceride to HDL ratio. Look at the LDL particle number. These are critical for whether you're gonna have vascular damage. Now the good news, everything we've talked about here is addressable. You can address your vascular changes. You can address if you're not getting enough oxygenation. Common thing that we see is that people are going to sleep at night, they don't realize they're dropping their oxygen saturation. Beautiful study that showed just looking at your mean oxygen saturation while you're sleeping correlates beautifully with brain volumes of specific regions of your brain, including your hippocampus. So we are starving our brains if we've got things like sleep apnea. Find out about it, even if you're not snoring, even if you don't have sleep apnea, good thing to know because it's something that's so easy to address. Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven Vision Edge. If we go back to inflammation for a second, inflammation yeah. is the core component to chronic disease and yeah. it's and in macular degeneration. It's what we think is the cause is inflammation plus genetics. So if we look at inflammation, homocysteine, C-reactive pro, reactive protein, these are these are things that also come up in the eye. So if somebody has high homocysteine, we could see hemorrhages in the back of the eye. Yeah. So it's, it's, I, got, I got interested in this because I would see hemorrhages, to your point, I would see hemorrhages in the patient's eye. I'd send them out to the PCP and they would always come back, there's nothing wrong. Yeah. So that's why I, I had to study this on my own to be able yeah. to find out why, because there's so many different things that could cause hemorrhages. But if you're just doing the basic cholesterol test and CBC and CMP, you're gonna miss so many different causes of the hem hemorrhages. So, yeah. so when you talked about insulin resistance in the eye, we could see microaneurysms now. And we did a study 
And we found that if, because we're looking at 15 microns, 10 to 15 microns, if we yeah. see these microaneurysms, they correlate with insulin resistance. And we could pick these people up so quickly in that they correlate with either fasting insulin or two-hour insulin. Yeah. And uh, it's unfortunate that doctors don't test, or most doctors don't test for insulin. Why do you think that is? Yeah, this is, this is all part of 21st century medicine. This is all part of prevention of getting these chronic illnesses at the earliest possible time so that you can make real change. And in fact, you can reverse these things in vast majority of cases when you're looking early. So I think it's fascinating. I saw your, your slide on that. Just fascinating that you can pick up these. You're essentially this is a pre-diet. We talk about diabetic retinopathy. You're picking up pre-diabetic retinopathy, which is fantastic because that's when you want to hit it before there are major problems. And so over the, over the years, people have said, oh, well, you know, it's good enough to just look at fasting blood sugar. Well, then they started adding, okay, well, let's look at hemoglobin A1C because that really gives you a couple of months uh, of integrated look at what the sugars are doing. And of course, now what's happening people are doing continuous glucose monitoring. And that's turned out to be so helpful because you can see what skyrockets really you know, spikes your glucose. And also we're finding that people will wake up in the middle of the night, not know why. Turns out their glucometer is showing that, hey, their, their sugar dropped down to 45 or 50. That's what's causing. They're spewing out the adrenaline, trying to keep that glucose. And why? Because they don't have smoothness in their glucose curves because they've eaten simple carbs. That's the typical thing. Then they go to bed, and then things just go come you know, crashing down. So it is critical to check insulin. And you're absolutely right. Doctors don't typically do it. It's not one of the standard tests that they do. And they should be doing it because it, the changes, if you look at all the years as you're going toward what will ultimately be diabetes. And again, just like what we talked about with Alzheimer's, the things that are heading in that direction, typically the first thing that goes is the insulin sensitivity. And so in fact, the most sensitive thing is actually to do a glucose tolerance test, but that's more work. Many people are not gonna be putting themselves through that. So okay, at least get a fasting insulin. That's the second most sensitive. And if you get a chance, look at the continuous glucose monitoring. So then the third thing to go is gonna be your hemoglobin A1C and the fasting blood sugar is gonna be the last thing to go. So it's not terribly sensitive. So yeah, for your patients, you're absolutely right. When you're seeing these microaneurysms, you absolutely wanna look at whether they have an insulin response to a glucose tolerance test, or at the very least, get a fasting insulin on these people and get them so that they don't have such insulin resistance. You're gonna save their lives. You're gonna reduce their risk for Alzheimer's disease. You're gonna reduce their risk for diabetes down the road. You know, all, and all the things that go with it for retinopathy, for, for nephropathy, for, for neuropathy, all of these things that go with uh, the, the chronic uh, type two diabetes. I wish we had a continuous insulin monitoring yeah. Rather than because yeah, be it, it's so much further before yeah. insulin goes up, way before glucose goes up. Yeah. So also with uh, with with the with the toxin types that it's more yeah. common in younger people. So if you have somebody with Parkinson's disease symptoms, they're in their forties or fifties, or Alzheimer's disease that it's coming in in their forties or fifties. Most of the time, that probably is toxin. Uh, that's the highest. That's the highest risk or the highest likelihood of a cause. That these are the common ones, and has been pointed out 
in, in a recent excellent book, uh, a prescription for ending Parkinson's disease. Uh, we are exposed to so many more toxins that we realize. And in fact, this has been such a bump in the last hundred years. All these sites, these so-called Superfund sites where toxins are stored. Um, people are living in homes not realizing that they're, that they're filled with these toxins. And in fact, it's, it's important to know about these. And so Parkinson's is, is on a dramatic rise. Alzheimer's is on a dramatic rise, unfortunately. And yes, these toxins, you know, we need to check for them. And as I say, you know, the, the three different types, the metallotoxins, the chemotoxins, uh, and the biotoxins. So these are all critical to look at. And in the case of Parkinson's, yeah, things like trichloroethylene um, and, uh, and things like paraquat. Uh, and, and it's looking like, you know, we'll see, glyphosate is really scary right now because so many of us are exposed to high levels of glyphosate from Roundup. Um, this is used in so many different crops. And in fact, uh, these, it, it's associated, there are, uh, there are at least anecdotal studies finding associations with things like Lou Gehrig's disease and Parkinson's disease. So this is, these are, are definitely major issues. And now we could test for this, right? To see if you have glyphosate and these different- Absolutely. Absolutely. Labs like Great Plain Labs, and I don't know which ones you use, but- uh, Yeah, we, we use typically a GPL, yeah, Great Plains Lab Talks. But let, let me ask you a question as an optometrist. So we have here, we have genetics. Uh, ApoE4 is the common one with Alzheimer's disease. And so if you have zero copies of ApoE4, which is about three quarters of Americans, your chance during your lifetime of getting Alzheimer's, about 9%. It's not zero, but it's not huge. If you have one copy of ApoE4, which you got from either your mother or your father, then and that's 75 million Americans. Your chance to get Alzheimer's is about 30%. So you want to get on prevention. And we'd like to get everybody out there on prevention. And then if you've got two copies, and that's about 7 million Americans, the vast majority don't know it, your risk is well over 50%. So it is the most common and important risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And what does ApoE4 do? One of the things it does is increase your systemic inflammation. Now here's the paradox. If you have ApoE4, your risk for Alzheimer's is increased, but your risk for age-related macular degeneration is decreased. And on the other hand, if you've got ApoE2, your risk for Alzheimer's is decreased, but your risk for macular degeneration is increased. So what do you think? Why is, why is something that is related to inflammation actually decreasing our risk for macular degeneration? There, it must be because of there's some kind of protection against yeah. inflammation because of ApoE4 as opposed to ApoE3. Yeah, it's, it, it makes sense, and that may well be the answer because ApoE4 does give you a protection against various pathogens and toxins. It is giving you this, uh, this inflammatory antimicrobial response. So again, these things that we, we've taken to to thinking that these are just trying to damage our nervous system. These are protective mechanisms that our body is making to fight the insults that we are exposing them to, from the infections we're getting, to the toxins we're exposing them to, to the metabolic changes uh, with insulin resistance and things like that. And so it's just unfortunate that secondarily these things are, they're downside. You're basically saying you can't afford to have uh, 500 trillion synapses, we're now going to downsize. So we want to identify what that is, 
so that you can upsize once again. But I, I won't be I wouldn't be surprised if there's new research to come out to show that APOE4 is a risk factor, not not a risk factor for AMD, because it really doesn't make sense that it's not. Yeah. You yeah, know, because and that APOE3 is protective. To me, that it doesn't really make sense. So I think that we may find that when those studies are redone, that it may be different. Because inflammation is so it's so it's such a big yeah. part of all chronic disease, especially macular degeneration. And and we know that APOE4 uh, is a risk factor for for vascular disease. Right. Absolutely. And, and I think you're right. When these are vascular disease. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, when we understand subtyping. So as we look at more and more testing, we can begin to see these patterns of subtyping, which we see in Alzheimer's. So my suspicion is that you're right. As we understand the various subtypes of macular degeneration, we'll be able to say, okay, this is the one where the inflammatory cascade of APOE4 is. And of course, complement, great example, uh, where people you know, with increased complement associated with macular degeneration. So you're right, in, you know, inflammation is another association. And people want to write these things off as just something simple. Oh, it's just diabetes of the brain. Oh, it's just inflammation. No, it's that you have a network and there are many things that impact that network. This is chronic complex illness. I remember there was a study done, I think it might have even been published in JAMA of all places, where they said it's multiple shots on goal, uh, right. chronic disease. And you know, we're dealing with these chronic diseases and all these different chronic diseases, and a lot of them, the treatment and the prevention are very similar. When you go through all the subtypes, the six subtypes, there's so many things that we're exposed to now that we weren't exposed to a hundred years. It's amazing we we live we can live at all past uh, past fifty years old. To me, well, as you know, for the first time in history, um, the lifespan is decreasing. Uh, and this is really unfortunate. So you're right. We, we have got to, you know, we are living in a changed world. We've accepted all these wonderful things uh, like, you know, like Twitter and Facebook and, and the internet and all these great things that have helped us, you know, GPS on and on and on. But we often forget that there are also fallouts from these things. We're living in a more toxic world. We're eating more toxic foods. We're sleeping less. We have more stress and strain. So in fact, you've got to balance this. You're going to have to look at these things. And I think it's, it is our job uh, as, as physicians to look at what's actually going on here so that we are looking at these complex organisms that we call human beings. And we're going to have to look more carefully. It's really interesting to me. You know, Google knows where you shop. Google knows what you're doing each day. They know stuff about you that you'd be surprised to learn. Why haven't we used these same sorts of complex algorithms to do much better with our medicine? We need to do these sorts of things so that we can look at larger data sets. And that's a big part of what we are currently doing, looking at larger data sets for people who have cognitive decline or are at risk for cognitive decline so that we can actually see what's driving the decline. Because as you indicated, you can use and use same things for both prevention and for treatment. Dr. Tanzi did some research, and you brought it up before, about infections being a cause of yep. Alzheimer's disease. How do you reconcile that with the herpes viruses and uh, the different types of viruses now that we're in the middle of COVID? How is that affecting our cognitive function? Yeah, so good point. So Rudy Tanzi and Robert Moyer published a number of years ago 
um, that in fact, if you look at this amyloid that we've vilified and people have, the drug companies have tried to get, let's get rid of the amyloid. Well, actually it is an antimicrobial peptide. You are fighting these various microbes. And so again, there are people that say, oh, all herpes, herpes is just, that's what Alzheimer's is. No, it, again, it's a contributor. And so you're changing this network and you can change it by introducing an infection. And as you indicated, herpes simplex one, a good example. HHV6A, another example, it's a different herpes virus that can get into your brain and it does increase your risk. It is associated with cognitive decline. Then you can look at things like P. gingivalis, so things that are coming from your dentition. So poor dentition allows specific bacteria to grow. And interestingly, these can gain access to your brain. So you're talking about lip, talking about your oral, den, you know, your dentition, P. gingivalis, T. denticola, F. nucleatum, all these things are bacteria that can gain entry to the brain. Then you're talking about things in your sinus, these various molds. When, and when you look at the brain, you can find things, fungi like candida, for example. You can find molds, things like that as well. It's amazing. If you look in the Alzheimer's brain, you do see infections frequently, but not always. Again, toxins and, and metabolic changes can, again, be part of this network downsizing that we call Alzheimer's disease. So absolutely, infections play an important role. And so when someone comes in with cognitive decline, you want to know, you want to know, do they have specific herpes viruses? Do they have specific uh, oral pathology? that is increasing their risk? Do they have chronic sinusitis? Are they growing specific molds from their sinuses that are putting them at increased risk? Do they have systemic infections? Things like Borrelia, Babesia, Bartonella, that all are tick-borne illnesses. So you're right there in the Northeast, which is where you know the tick-borne illnesses are a real concern. We have them out here in California as well, but it's a big problem, of course, in the Northeast. So many people get Lyme disease and tick-borne co-infections with the Lyme disease, which absolutely can contribute to chronic inflammation and chronic disease. I had a patient who had Lyme disease and became almost like crazy because they wound up with pans. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, they, and they had this, this neuroencephalitis and unfortunately, the psychiatrist wouldn't treat him for the pants. They would only give him psych medicine. Oh, Poor yeah. kid. I mean, I felt so bad for him. Yes. So again, 21st century medicine is unfortunately not being practiced by the majority of physicians today. We need to be looking at root cause. This is all about treating what's causing the problem. It, it's amazing to me that all previous trials for Alzheimer's disease have not treated what's actually causing the problem. They have predetermined a treatment before the trial even starts. We're gonna treat with this drug and see if it helps. Well, wait a minute, don't we wanna look at all the things that are contributing to the problem and target those things? And as you indicated, here's a classic example. Someone who's got PANS and they just wanna change the chemistry without changing the root cause of the neuropsychiatric problem. They wouldn't treat it. You know, I was on the phone with them and nothing I could, you know, I, you know, there's nothing I was able to do to get them to get, get this kid an MRI. Uh, he yeah. was in a major hospital in New York City and they just wouldn't do it. Yeah. So you, you need to get them to an integrated physician who will look at these things and, and look at root cause. You know, so, I mean, it, it was, it's, what do you think about uh, plasmapheresis for inflammation? Do you, you see any 
you know, there seems to be that there's some research to show that may be helpful. Uh, Absolutely. Inflammation is the cause. Yeah, and again, when you're going at, again, when you start by asking what's causing the problem, then the armamentarium you have is huge. We've been told over the years, we don't know what causes Alzheimer's, there's nothing we can do about it, we don't have anything that really works. No, it's the opposite. We've got many things that contribute to it. You need to look at them, you need to identify them, and once you do that, your armamentarium is huge. Plasmapheresis, um, IVIG, uh, you know, stem cells, uh, chain, metabolic changes, neurochemical changes, healing the gut, treating the pathogens, detoxification. You have to look at what's causing the problem. And once you do that, absolutely, and you're probably aware, of a wonderful paper just came out recently uh, from the Convoy uh, husband and wife team, a beautiful paper looking at effects of plasmapheresis and comparing these to the effects of these young plasma exchange that people have gotten so interested in. You know, the idea was, okay, we're going to be younger by getting younger plasma. Well, maybe, but it turns out that in their hands, at least, plasmapheresis was having a similar effect. You're literally, you know, getting rid of some of the, uh, quote, bad things, which include chronic inflammation, that tend to accumulate as we're aging. So again, doing the right things, there are multiple ways to get at that, but plasmapheresis is one of them. And same sort of thing for uh, IVIG, of course, it's, it's also been used. Each of these things has been used as a monotherapy without looking at what causes cognitive decline. And they say, oh, it doesn't really work. Well, yeah, because you're not using the right combination of things, you're not going after what's actually causing the decline. So in the right setting, absolutely, plasmapheresis is a powerful tool. And when we look at causes, I have to bring up medication side effects. There I'm are so glad you did, yeah. Medications that increase the risk. Even yeah. statins, which so many people are on, especially if you're over 70. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. And, and uh, recent papers showed that, in fact, very common contributor to cognitive decline, and especially any medication that has an anticholinergic effect. So when you're making memories and storing memories, you use specific neurotransmitters, and the most important one for memory turns out to be acetylcholine. And by the way, I should say, everyone should understand choline deficiency is one of the most common nutritional deficiencies in the United States. We should all be getting around 550 milligrams per day of choline. The vast majority of us are not. Um, if you are a you know, small framed person, you can get away with a little less, but in general, most of us need about 550 milligrams per day of choline. So what happens, you're not able to make the acetylcholine that you need. As you indicated then, there are all these medications, and a good example would be some of the antihistamines, for example, some of the sleeping pills, for example. These things will have an anticholinergic effect, and they absolutely increase your risk for cognitive decline, and you want to be able to get people off those in the long run. Another big one, the benzodiazepines, things like Valium, things like Xanax, these things also increase risk for cognitive decline. Another big one, PPIs, so many people are on these proton pump inhibitors. Again, it's backwards thinking. We're trying to get rid of the acid in our stomach. You need the acid to activate your enzymes to get appropriate 
uh, absorption. So when you take these PPIs chronically, which so many people do, you're decreasing your absorption of critical nutrients like zinc, for example, like B12, for example. Um, you're not able to absorb things the way you should be absorbing them. So those are another class of medications. These things are huge. And then you mentioned statins associated with Lou Gehrig's disease and things like that. So yeah, these things, you know, again, treating the cause of the problem instead of just throwing someone on a medication that is gonna have long-term, potentially very damaging side effects. That's the way to go. We talk about uh, recode. I want to ask you, did you find any other holes? You got 36, have you, since you writ, have written the book, have you found any more than 36? Yeah, so we now have a few more now. So, so we're now, we've now got about 40. But you know, the, the point of this was, if you look at the things that are contributing, instead of just saying, you know, what's the one cause of Alzheimer's? Well, it's not one cause. There are many different things. These are contributors and we want to identify all of them and we want to address all of them to get best outcomes. The good news is you don't have to address every single one. The first woman, for example, who got better way back in 2012, addressed 12 out of the 36. So we looked at all the different things and we came up with, from the research, 36 different contributors, things like increases in the beta and gamma cleavage of APP, decreases in the alpha cleavage, all these different things. So what we explain to the patients is, imagine you have a roof with 36 holes in it. That's what having Alzheimer's is like. So a medication is a really good patch for one hole, but you want to be able, I think the medications in the future are going to be very important, but they're going to be used on the backbone with closing the other things. Now, the good news is for most of us, we'll have one or two holes that's much, that are much bigger than the others, which is why we want to measure these. Is your homocysteine way too high? Is your HSCRP high? Is your fasting insulin high? All these things. So we've now discovered a few more. One of the things that came up that we didn't realize at the beginning was how important the nocturnal oxygenation is. And one of the things we're suggesting to people who have poor oxygenation, of course, with COVID-19, oxygenation has been so critical. You can check your oxygen saturation on your iPhone if you like, it's easy to do. Um, so you really wanna know where you stand with that. And of course, what's happened with COVID-19, all of these risk factors for things like chronic illness, like Alzheimer's, that play out over decades have been compressed into two weeks. So if you have low vitamin D, low zinc, uh, ongoing inflammation, hypertension, type two diabetes, obesity, these things increase your risk for a poor outcome from COVID-19, as you know. They also increase your risk for a poor outcome on your cognition and for developing Alzheimer's disease. So this is why it's critical to address these particular things. Where can people get choline? You mentioned that they need to have a certain amount of choline every day. Is it besides eggs? Where else? Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the, the common ones, so eggs uh, are, are, and again, you know, get pastured eggs. You don't want to have eggs that, that have a, you know, that have a lot of inflammatory omega-6 in them. Here you, you want to have the high omega-3 eggs um, and pastured eggs are the way to do that. Uh, and then liver, another, so organ meats, things like liver, uh, very helpful. And then other things, things like some of the seafood, things like oysters and things like that. And then you can also just simply get things like, uh, you know, you can, you can get citicoline, some beautiful research out of MIT uh, by Professor Wortman over the years uh, used citicoline. Uh, you can also do things like GPC-choline 
uh, which you can simply take as supplements to get appropriate uh, choline. And you can check, it's, you know, it's easy to do. You can check freely um, on chronometer, uh, C-R-O-N. It's not chronometer like your watch, but C-R-O-N-O-M-E-T-E-R, which I, one of the things I started do during, doing uh, during uh, COVID-19. You can track yourself each day and you can see how you stack up with your choline and whether you're getting enough and whether you're getting enough of multiple other nutrients and it helps you to adjust it. Easy thing to do. So let's talk about recode the treatment. Obviously, yeah. you know, we, we find out what the cause is. We know we could treat it, but let's kind of review the program that you came up with. Yeah, that's a great point. So back in 2011, actually, we were looking at all the different contributors and looking at the molecular biology. What causes the APP to be cleaved in the bad way? It's a, it's a switch. It's literally pulling back or the good way where it's actually helping you grow forward. And so we realized there are many things that have an impact on this. And so when we developed the program to address all these, we called it RECODE simply because it's reversal of cognitive decline. And now we're just coming out in uh, this uh, later this month, actually, with PRECODE, which is prevention of cognitive decline. So RECODE does exactly what you were saying. It looks at all these different things, and then you want to address these. This is root cause medicine, addressing the things that are actually giving you either risk for cognitive decline or your ongoing active cognitive decline. So you want to do the things that address these, and, the, and we were literally translating the molecular biology of the degenerative process into practical, useful things that you can do. And so people have said, oh, this is about lifestyle. No, it's about treating the things that are causing the decline. And if you think about it, it really doesn't make sense to do it any other way. Why would you not treat what's actually causing the problem? Uh, so, okay, so what we want to do is we want to start with your diet. It turns out diet is incredibly important. You know, I was taught in medical school, it's not that important. You just get people on the right drug. No, that's, that's wrong. It turns out it's very important. And so we typically recommend something we call KetoFlex 12-3, which I talk about in the book. Um, and that is a plant-rich, you know, you can have meat, have fish, chicken, all these things, fine. Or if you want to be a vegetarian, that's fine as well. But the point is that you want to deliver the appropriate chemistry to getting your brain to support itself. You want to drive yourself into mild ketosis. And with so this is KetoFlex 12-3, you want to have at least a 12-hour, typically it's 12 to 16-hour fast between finishing your dinner and starting your breakfast, brunch, or lunch the next day because you want to give your brain a chance to heal. You want to get the autophagy to kick into gear. You want to have the ketosis kicking into gear. You want to have a mildly ketogenic diet. People do best when their ketone levels are in the right range. We recommend 1.0 to 4.0 millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate or equivalent. And then exercise turns out to be really helpful. Again, both strength training, which helps your insulin sensitivity, um, and aerobic training, which helps your blood flow and helps get, getting yourself into ketosis and things like this. These are all critical. And then sleep, hugely undervalued. Sleep is an important contributor. And again, getting the right oxygenation during sleep is huge. And then stress reduction. You want to give someone Alzheimer's, and I have a chapter in there just how to give yourself Alzheimer's disease. And you can give yourself the biochemistry of Alzheimer's within a couple of weeks. Now, you may not have a diagnosis for years, but you can change your biochemistry to be a pro-Alzheimer's very quickly. And one of the things you do is ramp up your stress levels, get that cortisol very high. You will shrink your hippocampus over time. 
And then, so diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training. Brain training, again, by itself has been controversial because by itself it can only do so much. But on the backbone of all these other things, it's very helpful. And it's helping you to make and keep your synapses. And then specific optimizing your hormones, optimizing specific supplements, increasing things like your BDNF levels, all huge. And then as we talked about earlier, making sure you have appropriate oxygenation at night, making sure that you have appropriate dentition, that if you do have pathogens there, use dental side and toothpaste, use dental side and mouthwash. You can actually get rid of those pathogens and that turns out to be very helpful for many, many people. So all of these things are critical. And then, yeah, appropriate drugs. If you need appropriate drugs, absolutely. Then now you're using them on the right backbone. Good example, you know, people have uh, done stem cell research and looked at, okay, stem cells could be an important treatment. Absolutely. But they're trying to use these as a monotherapy. This is like trying to rebuild a house as it's burning down. You want to put out the fire first, then you try to, then you're going to have a much better chance to rebuild the house with your stem cells. So all of these things are part of Recode. We're looking at how do you actually reverse the process of, of synaptic loss, of cognitive decline. And we're seeing unprecedented improvements. What we're starting now is called the ARC Project, where we're looking at a, two by two by two, looking at people with other neurodegenerative conditions, including macular degeneration, uh, and, and including things like Lewy body disease and, and Lou Gehrig's disease. These things are all critical. And then looking, each one has its own biochemistry. There are overlaps, as you indicated, things like chronic systemic inflammation, but there are other things that are unique. Each of these affects a different subsystem within your nervous system. And each of those has its own supply and its own demands. And therefore, we want to affect each one of those to because the theory is bringing this back into alignment should in fact be able to have positive impacts just as we've seen time and time again with Alzheimer's. And the most exciting part about the Alzheimer's, when people get better, they sustain it. We have people now over eight years sustaining their improvement because now you're actually getting at what's causing the problem as opposed to trying to circumvent the problem and just say, okay, take this medicine, which is ignoring what's actually causing the problem. If we talk about pre-COVID or preventing Alzheimer's, what yes. are some of the supplements that you'd recommend? Uh, the, I, I'm, I'm assuming the same diet, the, the Ketoflex uh, diet and but what's some supplements? People like to take supplements. And what, what's some that you could recommend besides maybe omega-3s and being outside or getting vitamin D? What are yeah. some other ones? Yeah, it's a great point. And again, you know, supplements can be expensive. People start taking all these things. Um, there's been a lot of issue about, you know, how tightly should they be regulated? You know, I think you, you know, you're walking a line there. You, want, you don't want to regulate them so tightly that, you know, people don't have access to these things that can be very helpful because you are addressing key chemistry. So for pre-code, the idea was we want to make it so that we have people who are completely asymptomatic and in doing well with their cognition, want to be on prevention, but you don't want to necessarily have this extensive program that you, you know, you're going after. When someone has cognitive decline, you've got to pull out all the stops because this is a terminal illness. If you don't, you know, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to make them better 
or they're going to die, unfortunately. So that's why we want to pull out all the stops and do as much as possible for people with cognitive decline. For prevention, you don't need to have the extensive testing. So we have a more limited set of tests that you can get very easily and very inexpensively. And then everybody should be on prevention. And once you hit 45, and if you've got it in your family, you might even consider a little bit younger than that. And so you want to look at want to look again at, you want to look at the things like your uh, ongoing inflammation. You do, you mentioned vitamin D. You want to look at your vitamin D levels. You want to look at your status with respect to omega-3s. You want to look at some of these critical basics. Do you have things suggestive of ongoing toxicity? Now, if you find that there are problems or if you begin to have cognitive problems, then you want to look more at RECO. You want to look at a more extensive test. But for most of us, we can get away with simpler set of tests. And yes, still want to do the right diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training, all these things. But you want to do some simple supplementation. And remember, supplements are by definition supplementary. You can do so much of this with your diet and exercise and sleep and stress. And it is, it is cheaper that way. Now, for some things, absolutely, uh, supplements are indispensable because we're not always getting it. And choline is a good example for many of us who are not getting enough choline. I recommend citicoline or GPC choline. And actually, I take it myself and I actually go back and forth typically between GPC choline and citicoline, both helpful. You mentioned the omega-3s, very helpful, but you can also get these through eating fish, things like salmon. You want to eat the, you know, the good fish, the smash fish. You don't want the mercury-laden fish. Those are the ones with the big mouths and the long lives, things like tuna and swordfish and shark and things like that. You want the smash fish, right? S-M-A-S-H, salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, and herring. Those are the smash fish. Those are the good guys that have the high omega-3s and the low mercury. And then there are other uh, things. You mentioned uh, vitamin D, for example. I happen to like one that's called whole coffee fruit extract, WCFE. Um, what that does is increase your BDNF. You're also increasing that with your exercise. You're also increasing that with the other good things you're doing, like your brain training, and like getting the optimal sleep and things like that. With your ketosis, ketosis is actually interesting. And the ketones actually go into your brain, interact with specific histones, and remove the inhibition of the production of your BDNF. So they have a very interesting effect to increase your BDNF and whole coffee fruit extract can add to that as well and has a striking impact on your BDNF. And then there are things like uh, phosphatidylserine, for example, um, that can be helpful as well. There's an interesting thing called a propolis, um, which many people are, are using. Propolis is a really interesting molecule because it has an anti-inflammatory effect and an antimicrobial effect. And in fact, this is something made by bees the bees use this, they make this from bark. And they use this, in fact, to, to keep their hive, you know, decrease with the germs, so it helps clean the hive, it has an antimicrobial effect. And it also has this nice anti-inflammatory effect. There was a nice study showing that in people at risk for cognitive decline, simply taking propolis actually reduced their risk for progressing to cognitive decline. So again, 
I don't like the idea of monotherapies because they, they don't take into account, you know, if you, it's kind of like saying, you know, if you avoid a gun, you still are, you're still going to have a knife that could hurt you. You could still have a, a traffic accident. So you need to get all the different things. So you're, you get your best chance of keeping your cognition, but having an anti-inflammatory like that, a uh, very nice thing to have. And then of course, curcumin used by many, many people also has a nice anti-inflammatory effect. Also interestingly binds to uh, amyloid and binds to tau uh, and has, so it has a nice uh, combination. Now you don't want to remove the amyloid if you've still got all the things that the amyloid is protecting you. But as you're improving things, you want to get rid of that amyloid as well because it is when it's oligomerized, especially it is now downsizing your neural network. So those are just some of the many. And again, there are dozens. We have a great uh, dis a description of all of these uh, on, the, on the website. Um, and I go through an, uh, these in the book as well. Peptides and nootropics are, are very b big in, yeah. nowadays. What's your opinion on those? And, uh, you know, of course, uh, as a combination approach. Yeah, again, as part of, again, this... This is part of the overall armamentarium and the right setting. For, for those of us who are doing very well, we want to do things as close to, you know, upstream and causal as possible. And so we aren't typically going to be used nootropics, using nootropics or, uh, or peptides, but in the right setting, they can be very helpful. And again, when someone is suffering cognitive decline, we want to pull out all the stops. We want to do everything possible to get them on the right track. And things, peptides like, Thymus and alpha-1 can be very, very helpful. Thymus and beta-4 for regeneration can be very, very helpful. Uh, alpha-1 is changing essentially your immune system. Of course, immune status, again, has come out as so critical in COVID-19. And again, we see a parallel between Alzheimer's and COVID-19. In both of these, you have a scenario where you have chronic activation, or in the case of COVID, acute activation of the innate immune system ongoing inflammation, and of course, it's the cytokine storm that's killing so many people with COVID-19. With Alzheimer's, same story. You've got the activation of the innate immune system, but a poor activation of the adaptive system. And interestingly, in Alzheimer's, there's often a reduction in the phagocytosis, the ability to eat up the antigens and present them to get the adaptive system going. Guess what increases that? Things like omega-3s and things like uh, vitamin D. You, so you get in this chronic inflammatory state. And so there are resolvents to help you resolve that state. Another good supplement, by the way, these SPM, specialized pro-resolving mediators that can be helpful. And again, you want to make sure you don't want to you know, resolve your inflammation if, they, if, you've got, if you're still exposed to the thing causing it. You want to remove that as well. But then you want to be able to improve that. So Absolutely, there's a place for things like peptides. There's a place for things like nootropics. Nootropics, the only issue there, be careful because you're driving. You can always push your brain to do more in an unnatural way. At cocaine, great example. You can be pretty smart with cocaine, pretty smart with amphetamines for a short period of time, but it's giving you a problem long-term. So for some of the nootropics, they're doing the same sort of thing. They're giving you this drive that is a hyperdrive. Great for short term, not necessarily the best thing in the long run. For the long run, what you want to do is give yourself the optimal chemistry to having new synapses form, and then use things like brain training that are enhancing your processing speed. 
And then there's IV, like IV vitamin C, IV glutathione. How's the success with that as far as part of the gestalt? Yeah, again, great point. This is very helpful, again, for people who have toxicity. And people, for example, who have what's called chemo brain, who've had chemotherapy and have had problems. IV glutathione in people with toxicity can be dramatic. And we see all the time people who will have the toxic form of Alzheimer's disease. And what will happen with them, they've been exposed to things like mycotoxins over the years, and now they're having major problems. When they get the IV glutathione, the spouse will say, oh my gosh, they're so much better for the rest of that day. Then the next morning they'll wake up, they're not as good as they, they're not quite as good, but they're, they'll slowly sawtooth up over time as they get these injections. They are helping to detox, they're helping to deal with this ongoing toxic burden. So things like IV glutathione, IV vitamin C, again, in the right settings as part of the overall program can be very powerful. To use these, you know, without respect to what's causing the problem is a bit silly, but to look at them in the appropriate setting, absolutely powerful and part of the overall armamentarium. You know, certain people, they love chocolate. I noticed in your book, you actually said if you eat dark chocolate over 80% or 75%, you're okay with that. Absolutely. And you know, what you don't want to do is have massive amounts of sugar and lots of milk chocolate and things like that. Uh, and you know, these things can be damaged. Again, you know, every once in a long while, fine. But in general, you're absolutely right. Things, dark chocolate can actually be helpful. And by the way, you know, increasing your cyclic AMP, Again, part of memory formation. This is why people like to drink coffee. You know, you're sharper, you're more with it. Now, again, too much of that over a long period of time, yeah, you can damage your adrenal glands. But in fact, what's been shown is that people who drink coffee are at lower risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. You are increasing your cyclic AMP, which is part of memory formation. So yeah, things like dark chocolate and coffee can be very, very helpful. Can you explain how the brain uses ketones instead of sugar and how that's a benefit? Absolutely. And one of the things that's come out of all this is that when you have cognitive decline, part of the problem, in addition to what we've, all the things we've been talking about, the chronic inflammation and the loss of trophic factors, et cetera, one of the pieces, you literally have an energy gap you are not supplying the energy. Now we talked earlier about if you don't have enough oxygenation at night, that's one of the reasons for an energy gap. If you don't have, as you mentioned earlier, vascular support, that's another one. And of course, as you know, in COVID-19, it's been about clots, young people having strokes. You have these microthrombi also in Alzheimer's disease. So you have this phenomenon with increased clotting that can be a problem as well. So what the ketones are doing is to bridge this energy gap. If you look at the brain of someone with Alzheimer's or pre-Alzheimer's for years ahead of time, they have a decrease in the utilization of glucose in a specific pattern that looks essentially like an L, your temporal lobe, your parietal lobe. And you see this bilaterally in people who have Alzheimer's disease. And in people who are at risk with ApoE4, you may see this even as early as in the 20s. So this energy gap, we can now bridge this energy gap by giving ketones or by developing ketones. The best way is that you make them endogenously. You make ketones when you break down your own fat. 
So you can also do it with a ketogenic diet where you're eating fats that are broken down. You can also do it by taking some supplements. And if you're not making enough ketones, it's a good way to start. In the long run, again, we'd like to get you on endogenous ketosis. But early on, very helpful. And you can do this either by taking things like MCT oil or coconut oil, or you can do it by taking so-called exogenous ketones, such as ketone salts or ketone esters. Um, and these things can help the bridge that gap. These ketones will enter the brain. They can be burned by your mitochondria as fuel. So in fact, they can help you bridge that energy gap. So they can be very powerful. And we do see repeatedly people who are getting into ketosis are doing better with their reversal of cognitive decline than those who are not getting into ketosis. And cooking with coconut oil? What do you... Uh, how yeah. Again, good way to do it. If Now, be careful because coconut oil can increase your LDL particle number. So what we, again, what we usually recommend is when you're using these things, check, your, you know, check to see where your LDL particle number. For short term, for starting things, great to be using uh, coconut oil. These are saturated fats, so be careful. And things like MCT oil, coconut oil. Then you, what you can do is you can then start switching over to more monounsaturates and polyunsaturates as you're developing your endogenous ketosis so that you can kind of use both knowing your vascular status, knowing your status with LDL particle number, for example. And if there's a question, you know, if you have, if you're an APOE4 and you're concerned about your vessels, okay, go ahead and get a, a, a scan, so-called a Gadsden uh, score, where you can look to see a calcium score to see whether in fact you do have any cardiac uh, uh, any, any coronary artery disease. And people find out all the time, oh yeah, actually I had high cholesterol, but in fact, I don't have any coronary artery disease. And on the other hand, people will sometimes find out, you know, my cholesterol wasn't so high, but in fact, I do have some coronary artery disease. For those people, you want to think more in terms of the exogenous ketones. Don't drive up your LDL particle number. But again, you can balance these things so that you get the best of all worlds. One of the things that we look at also is macular pigment. And the more macular pigment is an indication of the lutein, zeaxanthin, mesozeaxanthin, yes. and then lutein is actually in the brain and helps with cognition. Absolutely, and these are critical things. Uh, yeah, in certain fact, I, I, I take some myself, uh, so-called omega vision, so this stuff has uh, zeaxanthin in it, lutein in it. Um, you have to get a certain amount for these, and of course, people often don't have enough of these in their diets. Uh, so making sure that you get enough of these critical, critical for your vision, critical for your brain. And my last question is uh, a, a patient of mine who happens to be a physician had COVID. And we talked a little bit about this, but he, he goes places and he forgets where he is. And he's really having a lot of neurological symptoms. Uh, you know, COVID's so new. One is we don't know, if, is, is this forever or Maybe if he goes on your on the on the recode, he could he could do better. Yeah, he absolutely should be looking at what are the other drivers as well. So you bring up a really good point, and we see this all the time: people who are improving, and then they will get a viral infection, and they'll go backwards because again, this is another reason for inflammation. Your body is responding to this, but again, as they get rid of that, they then they're on the pathway to improvement again. Now, as you indicated, with COVID. More than 50% of people who develop COVID-19 do have some neurological manifestations, and they're all over the map. 
Um, it can be a stroke. And unfortunately, young people can get strokes with COVID-19 because of this hypercoagulable state. It can be an encephalopathy where you can get some confusion. Uh, it can be, uh, of course, loss of smell has been described very frequently with COVID-19. Loss of taste, another one. Guillain-Barre paralysis can happen. The good news, Guillain-Barre tends to go away, so you get better. Now, the big concern that we all have is, are the people who, who, re who recovered from COVID-19, are they going to be at increased risk for things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's? Of course, if you remember back to 1918, the post-encephalitic Parkinson's that occurred for years, people would get a different virus, which was called sleeping, sleeping sickness at the time, von Economos encephalitis. It was actually not the Spanish flu, but it was another virus that came at around the same time. And they had an increased risk. And of course, this was shown beautifully in the film Awakenings and the book by Oliver Sacks. So they were at increased risk. Now, the good news is COVID-19 doesn't affect your nervous system as much as the sleeping sickness of 100 years ago did. However, we are all concerned. We're on the lookout. Are we going to see a spike in Alzheimer's cases? We already know there's going to be some increase because of people staying indoors, people getting more depression, people getting more anxiety because of the pandemic. But are we going to have this because of viral effects, both on the brain and on the immune system, and time will tell. But absolutely anyone who's got changes, cognitive changes, should be evaluated, should absolutely be on an appropriate program for them to improve their cognition, including your physician patient. I just wanna thank Dr. Bredesen. You've been so generous with your time. Uh, people wanna find more about you and more about your work. How can they do that? Yeah, you can look at drbredesen.com or at mycognoscopy.com or at apollohealthco.com. And we set this up uh, with Apollo uh, that does the software to, because we need a larger data sets for people who are having cognitive changes. So any of those things uh, will be useful. So thanks very much, uh, Dr. Gell, for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And this is Dr. Kerry Gell for Open Your Eyes. Thank you. Stay safe and healthy. You too, Dr. Bredesen. Thank you so much. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I like to bring extra, and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you. 